Hi, I'm Barb Oakley, author of A Mind for Numbers, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Barbara Oakley. Dr. Barbara Oakley is a professor of engineering at Oakland University and McMaster University. Her online courses on learning are some of those popular MOOC classes in the world. Her research ranges from STEM education to learning practices. With more than 2 million participants in the Coursera course so far, Barb's work proves that learners appreciate practical methods and materials grounded in research about how the brain learns. Barbara Oakley lives near Rapid City, South Dakota, and is here to talk about her book, A Mind for Numbers, How to Excel at Math and Science, Even if You've Flunked Algebra. Welcome, Barb. It's so nice to be here, Bill. It's great to be with you. Let me just acknowledge and say thank you for your service. It's a time when we need to acknowledge that the effort and time and energy that you devoted to that. I just want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I think people really don't realize how much good that good service can actually do for others. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? I was very lucky. My father was a real inspiration for me. He was very low-key and very pragmatic. He is what led me to the path I'm on today. What's a lesson that he taught you that you remember as you think back now on growing up? This is like a double-handled lesson. First, I always wanted to learn another language and actually become a professor of linguistics. My father said, good luck with that. I'm not helping in any way, shape, or form because you're not going to be able to get a job with that. He was right. It would be very difficult to get a job as a professor of linguistics. But I said, oh, I thought I'm going to outsmart my father. I'm going to join the army because they'll actually pay for me to learn another language. I told my father... And he said, oh, that's great. You're going to learn a lot. Meaning, of course, I was going to learn a lot more than just about learning a language. So you might think, oh, my father was very non-supportive of my willingness to follow my passion and learn what I want to learn. But he was extremely supportive in a very pragmatic way. Later, after I had served for seven years in the military, I'd gotten out. I was coming back to the university to become an engineer. So I had started to try to retrain my brain. And I got a call from a company that asked me if I could come out and work as a Russian translator for the Soviets because I'd learned Russian military, which is really quite interesting today. I said, no, I'm very interested in learning chemistry. I am starting chemistry and I'm actually getting really excited about learning in math and science. So I turned them down. I said, I will not work on Soviet trawlers up in the Bering Sea. I was visiting my father at the time. I came back out after the phone call and he asked me what the phone call was about. I said, I'd turned down this opportunity. He said, you did what? Do you realize how exciting that would be? So I went back in and I called him back and said, I would take the job. So he was really encouraging of adventures and learning new things in life, but also he was encouraging of using a little common sense along with that. What is it that led you to engineering as a career? When I worked in the service, I was probably 
probably the world's worst signal core officer. I grew up hating math and science like a lot. So I flunked my way through elementary, middle and high school math and science. I thought I just want to learn another language and enlisted in the army because that's how I found out I could get paid for it for learning a language. And I got an in-service scholarship that allowed me to get my first degree in Slavic languages and literature at the University of Washington. Then I was commissioned as a signal corps officer to go off in West Germany and serve. I was so awful. I didn't understand anything technological. I purposefully steered clear of anything to do with technology. It was only the army, they could dictate where they were going to assign me and what specialty I would have to take on. So they commissioned me in the Signal Corps. I was sent to the Signal Officer Training School in Fort Gordon, Georgia, where I graduated last in my class and then went off for four years in West Germany and really didn't understand anything technological. But I could see that all the West Point engineers who I was working with, they had really good grasp. And here I had thought that I just didn't want to learn anything to do with quantitative skills. But at the same time, their desire and ability to work with those kinds of skills actually was serving them in great stead. They were doing exciting jobs. I remember thinking, are they just smarter than me? That must be it. But then I wondered, is the training itself actually helping them to become? And it was actually that. I didn't realize it at the time. I just thought, you know, when I get out of the army, let's see if I can retrain myself and actually learn in math and science. So when I was 26 years old and I got out of the army, I went to remedial high school algebra and began climbing my way up. And that's why I am now a distinguished professor of engineering. So you, you took the slow and steady route in order to build and upgrade the education that you had that built that solid foundation for you to build upon with a career in engineering and STEM, essentially. Is that right? That's that's right. Business owners can take from this is that nowadays you don't have to like stop what you're doing, stop your life and go to the university and start low and slow. You should always start low and slow, but you can do it by taking these great online courses. And nothing like that was available back in the day. What's really great is that if you want someone to learn a special coding skill or whatever, they can do it slowly over a period of many weeks, a little bit every day. And what we know is that this this is the optimal way for people to learn. Courses are available in so many different formats and venues. People may have a difficulty choosing which ones make sense. I think of it as the business leader or manager needs to understand what the outcomes are and what the metrics are, and then think about what are the skills we need to get there, and then make sure that they have people in their teams who understand those skills to design and manage the processes. When you think about what skills are needed to be successful today, regardless of the industry you're in, what are some of the things that they don't teach you in college, but that are necessary skills today that people should be looking at in order to round out their education and be more successful in a world that's constantly changing and evolving and requiring even more analytical insight? First, I think you need to be very cautious of people who are trying to tell you that soft skills are the be-all and end-all. That's not true. You need to know whatever that area is, whether it's search engine optimization, 
presentation or uh, a special coding skill or whatever it is, you want to be looking and seeing what some of the latest coursework that's available on that, on your technical expertise. So before you do anything else, as far as adding soft skills, make sure you are up to date and your people are up to date in what their technical skills are. I was thinking that when business leaders are doing this, they ought to be looking at what they want to be able to do. They want to add a capability to their organization or their department, such as maybe tapping into APIs that Big Blue is making available. And they ask themselves, we could really benefit from those insights of being able to use this external computing power. I wonder how people do that. And that should be the the starting of seeing what kind of skills and courses they want to take because it gives them direction and focus. Yes, that is exactly right. A good place to go to see what the latest courses are in whatever that skill set you want people to be getting is classcentral.com. And what it does is it allows people to put in the subject matter that they want to research. And it shows you all of the different platforms that are teaching about this concept. And here's the great thing. It's a little like amazon.com and the star system. You can see how much they like the course. The bottom line is you really want a good instructor and you want a course that's well put together. You can have people that can teach the course, but they can do it in a way that's super boring. It, It really can turn your folks off of whatever they're trying to learn. So the quality of the instructor, the quality, the platform really can make big difference in your learner's success. If you're assisting one of your students or someone consulting with you who ran a business or a department, and they were saying, I'm looking at these courses, how would you advise them to evaluate the information of other students? What would be your approach? The easiest way is, first off, look what the star rating is. Is it five stars on Class Central? Then you'll have five people taking the course or have 50,000 people rated the course. That makes a big difference as far as what is the quality, what's the reputation of whatever this course is. Be aware that just because a course is from Harvard or MIT or whatever, that does not necessarily mean that's a well-done course. In fact, it's surprising. I was just talking to someone about coursework from a school, which I will not mention that is one of the top universities in the world. One of the professors was just like, I've got to do this course, even though I really don't care about it, because the other people in our department are doing courses. So they put together something, but their heart wasn't in it. Some of the courses are like just plug and play, and others grow from the passion of the instructors. So the great thing about online learning is that there's competition, which universities have not in the past really been used to. With online learning, there's competition, and it it really can help lift the quality of courses because people know that they won't come to your course if it's not at least somewhat well put together. That's so true. Many faculty members and experts in the field, many listeners of the show are experts and thought leaders. And they think that they see someone else having tens of thousands of students on a course that if they just merely put their content up there, that it will also get that. Have you found to be true that it is a meritocracy or does it require additional marketing for an online course to be successful given all of the choices that people have today? If you have Harvard in the title, you're going to automatically get tons more students, whether or not the course deserves it. 
not to say that there aren't really good courses. Some of Harvard's introductory programming courses is really one of the best on the web. And Andrew Ng is from Stanford, and his courses on machine learning are just wonderful. It comes through in his teaching. But just look at what the reviews are and see what the comments are. That will tell you a lot about whether the instructor is actually just phoning it in or whether it's really something that you want to watch. Also true that places like MIT have their whole curriculum online for people to view and to follow along with the examples. You're not going to get feedback from the instructors. However, it's there for the learning. We had Scott Young on um, My Quest for the Best, and he talked about how he did the entire computer science curriculum at MIT because it was a challenge that he wanted to take on. Scott Young is an awesome guy. I I, I love what he did. At the same time, online learning has moved so much more swiftly ahead. So Scott Young, when he did that MIT challenge. That was pretty much what was available at the time. All MIT did, which was great at the time, was just videotape instructors standing in front of the board and teaching their class. Now we've got so much more vibrant and exciting stuff available. I'm going to ask you to name two or three that you find as great examples for people who are thinking of not necessarily taking it for the content, but following it for the model of how to deliver engaging and valuable information online. I know that Arizona State, some of their English as a second language courses from Coursera are really quite well done. They use some of the same methodology that I use to teach. I really like what a company named outlier.org is doing as far as creating terrific college courses that you can take for credit that have just excellent instructors and excellent visuals. So I recommend if you're trying to get college courses, that's a good way to do it. If you're taking these introductory math courses, it can open a lot of more advanced career paths for you. And a lot of times people just don't know this. One of the things that I think the people reading your book will get out of is that there are different thinking styles and there are different traps that we need to avoid. So you talk a similar principle of focused and diffuse thinking. And the pandemic has forced us into new environments and relating to our colleagues in different ways and collaborating with them in different ways. What are some of the patterns of ineffective thinking that you've noticed people are struggling with that you could help explain a way out of based upon your research and understanding how the brain works for people to learn. So I can tell you right off the bat, the most powerful tool that people can learn about and apply in their lives uh, related to learning. I'm saying this because I hear this tens of thousands of learners on learning. We're starting to get towards three and a half million learners on the platform. And well, it's actually four million. This technique is called the Pomodoro technique. The real challenge for all learners everywhere, every country is always not so much how do you focus, how do you do all this kind of stuff. It's procrastination. People can procrastinate about whatever they're wanting to learn. And so the Pomodoro technique is a wonderful technique to help get you past procrastination and into careful focusing. If you could just Mm -hmm. define what the technique is, I'd love to hear your words. It's very simple. You simply turn off all distractions. So no ringy dingies on your cell phone, nothing popping up on your computer, minimize distractions. I actually have a gigantic pair of headphones that I put on to block out sound. Then you set a timer for 25 minutes, work as intently as you can, 
for those 25 minutes without letting your get yourself get distracted. And when you're done, reward yourself with five minutes of relaxation. As it turns out, especially when it comes to learning, but also for productivity, this optimal balance of getting a certain network in your brain called the task positive network to operate whatever you're supposed to be productive about. But then that five minute break allows something called the task negative network to put things together in the background while you are mentally relaxing. And this terrific way to learn or be productive. You might say, no, I can be more productive if I just eliminate that five-minute break. Au contraire. It is what that five minute does is it allows you to step back, take a fresh perspective on whatever you're working on so that when you return to it, you can tackle it more intelligently and effectively. Also, that five minutes of relaxing break behind the scenes, your little hippocampus is turning around to long-term memory links in the neocortex and saying, reinforce these. Oh, winnow away these. It's actually helping you learn when you're taking that break and you're just not conscious of it, but it's really being effective. Just as a fun fact, the Pomodoro technique hasn't been around that long. It's only been around since the 80s. The word Pomodoro refers to tomato because the fellow who created it had a tomato timer that he would set for both the work focus as well as the relaxation focus. Precisely correct. All credit is due to Francesco Sedillo, the Italian who came up with the Pomodoro technique, which is just, it's so simple, yet no one had ever thought of it before. He was so creative in putting together something that we now know from neuroscience. You talk in the book about preventing procrastination. This is one way of doing it, but you also talk about the importance of habits. Can you say more about that in developing a productivity environment that incorporates a couple habits that allow you to be at your best and not completely drained at the end of a morning or end of a workday. So there's so many ways that you can incorporate habit into your life that can be beneficial for you. Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit was a great book along these lines. And he recommended things like set your running shoes by the door along with your outfit so that it reminds you and you can easily get going on whatever that habit is that you like exercising that you want to incorporate into your life. The reality is that there the brain has two major superhighways of one is called declarative. It goes through the hippocampus and into long-term. The other, it, it goes in through the basal ganglia. That latter basal ganglia uh, pathway is the habitual pathway. Habits can be really easy, like tying your shoelaces, but they can be really complex, like speaking in your native language. Those who you work with can take advantage of, because this, when you learn something really well, and you do it a lot, the part of your brain called the infralimbic cortex says, I keep using this equation a lot, I'm going to create a set of links using this habitual pathway. Once you do that, you don't have to think about it anymore. It becomes like a hotkey on a computer that's a memorized macro or full routine that's accessed with just a single tap. Exactly. It's so exciting that there are new developments coming out even now in the 2020s. It's just so exciting that we're getting new insights into how we learn best that could be taken and embraced and experimented with by everyone listening. Barbara, 
Were you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Let's go for it. Earlier, we talked about who influenced you growing up, and you talked about your father. When you were a teenager, Barb, what's a song that you loved? I love classical music, so I was a very big fan of Beethoven's. Did you play in an orchestra when you were in school? I started violin very late, so there's hope for you if you're really terrible. What would you say is the best advice that you ever received as an adult? I think it's my husband just prompting me and encouraging me to keep my spirits up and keep forging ahead. What's the worst advice you ever received as an adult? If I want to be promoted, I must give up all my work in education because it's silly. So I need to completely change my direction if I want to be successful and get a promotion and so forth. So I was like, then I guess I won't get promoted because I'm not going to switch the direction of my life at the whim of someone who is actually just trying to destroy all the the work I've done. In the long run, I have been very lucky. If I had stopped doing what I would be doing, you would never be hearing from me. I can get away with almost anything because I'm very successful. They don't pester me anymore about giving up. It's a whole other level of commercially successful that goes beyond tenure successful, isn't it? It is completely, it's an order of magnitude more successful. I think for many professors and for business leaders, what you really want is to do something that has high impact. In other words, it's effective and helpful for others. So I feel that I've been very fortunate that has unfolded. But part of that has unfolded because I stuck to my own guns and did not allow other people sway me from my path. Unless it was my husband who always has comments. Not just common sense, but it's aligned with your best interests, as clearly that other person who gave you that advice wasn't. I have to give a lot of credit to my colleague and co-instructor in Learning How to Learn, who's the Francis Crick professor at the Salt. He opened so many doors. So having a great mentor can make an immense difference in your life. And how do you get up a great mentor? If how you're did you lucky? meet your mentor, Carrie? What was the first time that you met him? So I did an edited book called Pathological Ultra, which is about how trying to do good for others can actually really be harmful and that it's almost in, embedded in the human psyche that you don't like to look at whether or not what you're doing to help others actually is helpful for others because it seems so obvious that it must be. And in fact, efforts to help others can off spectacularly backfire and make things worse for them. So I did an edited academic volume for Oxford University Press on this topic. And, and also a paper for the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So I was asked by the National Academy of Sciences to give a presentation. And of course, it was very controversial because especially in academia, we're, we're all do-gooders. We want to be helping out. I gave my presentation and of course, I knew it was going to be controversial and it was uh, people in the audience were like, how could you say that altruism could ever be harmful? But my moderator loved the talk. He clearly, he kept interrupting people who were trying to say bad things and, and say, no, let me ask you this question. And he threw me a really nice softball question that clearly he really, he thought these ideas were thoughtful and useful. My moderator was Terry. He, afterwards, he said, this is really helpful for other people. You know, it's good to know. But there's another area in our country that is also really important, and that's math and science education. I said, Terry, just so happens I'm writing a book about that. That book was A Mind for Numbers. And uh, Terry goes, can I write the forward. I said, can I just die and go to heaven? Sure, you can write the forward. So he did. And we came to know one another and we decided to do the massive open on course together. So now what A Mind for Numbers has sold well over a million copies worldwide. And the course Learning How to Learn is one of the top in the world out of what, 20,000 college courses. It's really no 
number four. And that's what a stroke of luck that Terry and I were, that we met. And, and I've learned so much. He's a great neuroscientist. He's actually one of only 12 living human beings who's a simultaneously a member of the National Academy of Science, National Academy of Engineering, and National Academy of Medicine. So he really knows his stuff. Wow. So much of what we learn and so much of what I've learned about people who make great accomplishments, we don't make changes until a new idea comes into our lives or a new person comes into our lives, or some event clarifies something within ourselves. It's really pretty straightforward. This is a beautiful example of how you came into each other's lives, and the result of which is this tremendously productive and beneficial work that has helped others in spite of your initial contact about altruism being counterproductive. So there was a way forward to be able to be helpful to people that truly resonated, and the market spoke. So that's very clear. And Terry Stanowski, I'm sure, is still active today. He's been a collaborator of yours and a mentor. It's terrific to hear how you two got. To. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've eliminated in the last year that's led to the most personal satisfaction or pleasure? I try towards the end of each day, and that can, my days start early, like four in the morning or something. So around four in the afternoon, I like to quit. My husband and I just enjoy watching a television show together. It's really quite pleasant. So Downton Abbey, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, you name it, and we'll just go. Stories that's long and dramatic arcs. Yes, we really like those. And But what that did was that, remember that habitual procedural pathway of learning that's you learn pat, really complex patterns, but you're completely unconscious of it, like native language. What that was actually doing was seeding me with visuals, create compelling visuals, tell compelling stories. How do you educate better in some sense? And I can guarantee you, I would not have been able to create learning how to learn course without that background operation of just watching TV and seeing what works and how they present things in visual and video. These little pleasant breaks that we take actually help far more helpful than I ever imagined. You didn't start out and ask, how could watching TV help me in my work? Yet it was a serendipitous outcome. Exactly. And so often people don't realize that if they're doing something, once they know that something, they will bring it unconsciously in, it will influence. I can't tell you how often I'll be talking to someone and there's a really perfect example that I could see because of having learned about these other things that seemed at the time I had no idea would be useful for anything. Let's close by giving advice to managers who are saying, we're so busy. How do we possibly allocate time for learning? And why would learning how to learn better help us be more successful at doing our work and producing reports? and serving our customers. We just need to put in more effort rather than learn something about how neurobiology helps us think better or learning how to approach reading and chunk it down differently. It's seemingly a paradox where we say that the hard skills, the analytic skills are so valuable in unlocking things, but until you take a step back and look at your approach to learning, your attitudes about learning, you don't value that process enough to get the most out of the hard content. How do you resolve that from your perspective? Most people are very much in agreement with the idea that keeping on top of the new material that should be being learned in their discipline with relation to their discipline is a smart thing to do. And that if you don't do that, your company is going to fall behind. You personally are not going to be as competitive in the marketplace. So most people are on board with that. But what they don't understand is that 
a lot of ways that are currently used for learning new things, visual and video thing, really not very. There's ways to make things stick to learn more efficiently and effectively in less time. That's the great thing. Wouldn't you like to be able to learn and remember whatever you're trying to acquire or master in less time and more efficiently? What people would love to have is that it becomes easier. And there's only so much of that you but what you can learn, in other words, it's not going to be like, yeah, I just take the contents of the book and scoop them into my brain and I don't have to do any effort. There's a wonderful little meme of a, a little boy about five years old who's just scooping a, a page out of a book and he's just using his hands as if it was water. He was trying to scoop the ideas in. We can't do that yet. Like Dude, in the first Matrix movie where he's gained the skills by playing a, a quick clip of it and you've instantly become a jujitsu master or learn how to fly a helicopter. Someday it will come, but I think that day is further away than most people think. It's work that's that makes you much more efficient. It's like plowing a field. What do you want to do that with? Do you want to do it with dragging your plow around by yourself, or do you want one of those really nice and efficient tools that can help you plow that field much more quickly, effectively, and do a better? That's what some of these intellectuals can do for you now. There's just so much to be gained by just just the efficiencies of learning better about how your brain works. Barb, you have been so generous in sharing your insights and experiences with us today on My Quest for the Best. I want to thank you for helping us become more inspired about the importance of learning and understanding how to adopt the new techniques so we're not, as you said, dragging a plow manually, but we're stepping onto a very powerful international harvester tractor to plow our fields. We talked about the Pomodoro method and the importance of setting not a tomato, but a timer in order order to help us track 25 minute, five minutes of relaxation to let the brain continue to percolate and process all that we've learned. We talked about the importance of being able to learn from all of the courses that are out there. We discussed briefly the example of Scott Young, who is a previous guest on my quest for the best, how he took the MIT computer science curriculum at a time when it was strictly just watching professors lecture. It wasn't as effective as the more advanced and polished presentation techniques that are used today to make it even easier to learn and apply methods for teaching effectively as we're presenting information to students in MOOCs as well as classrooms face-to-face. -face. So for these reasons and so many more, I want to thank you for joining me today on My Quest for the Best. Tell me, before we say goodbye for now, where can we find out more about you and your work online? Just go to my website, barbaraoakley.com. There I am with all of my courses and books and so forth. Do as Bill just did. That's my closing. Notice how Bill recapitulated in his mind and for all of us what some of the key ideas we've talked about were. It will help to really allow your learning to flourish. Barbara Oakley, thank you once again. We're going to link to your website, barbaraoakley.com. We're going to link to your social media, as well as places to buy all of your books so the people listening to this episode can go to the show notes and find it easy to keep up with you and what you're doing in the world of learning. So Barb Oakley, author of A Mind for Numbers, How to Excel in Math and Science, Even if You Flunked Algebra, I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Oh, and thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, 
course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.